Well, this is the third week of Advent. And you know, Vinette brought us some theologically correct candy canes today. They have the three thin stripes instead of the four. So anybody who wants a candy cane, you can see if a theologically correct candy cane tastes any better than a theologically incorrect one. I, I don't know, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, oh, she wants a cake. It's coming, babe. It's coming. Does anybody want to come and light candles today? Any volunteers? Want to come up here? Good. So we're going to, the first week of Advent was the week of hope. And that's called the prophet's candle because the prophets foretold the coming of Christ. And actually, you can light these three. The pink one would be the new one today. And the second candle last week was the peace candle. And that's called the angel's candle because, yeah, that one there. Because the angels were the ones that announced peace on earth. Thank you. Wait a second. I've got another present for you. This is a sanctified candy cane with only three stripes. There you go. And I know, Gary, you'll get yours in a minute. Okay, so you just be patient. Okay. And today is the candle of joy. And this is called the shepherd's candle because this is what the uh, angels announced to them. So let me just read out of Luke chapter 2, the passage of scripture that goes with this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Jesus brings joy to the world. Now, The whole message is going to be about joy this morning. But um, I hope this has happened to you once in a while. I'm going to tell you something that's happened to me twice in the last six weeks. And I'm not saying it to sound self-congratulatory in any way. But I was just thankful that it showed. I take, um, I think I've mentioned this before, I take about a three, three and a half mile walk um, through Lloyd Flam, Floyd, Lloyd Flam, I'm slightly verbally <laughs> dyslexic this morning, Floyd Lamb State Park, uh, and that's kind of my prayer walk. It takes me a little, about an hour and ten minutes. By the way, you get on that prayer list every day too, and uh, all my family, all those sorts of things. And um, it, it, was, it must have been six weeks ago, I passed a lady, she was going the opposite way on this prayer walk, and I can't remember what happened, but as I went around, I passed her again, and she stopped, and she wanted to talk to me for a minute. I don't even remember what the conversation was about, but it was just very brief, and she said, are you a Christian? And I said, well, well, yes. And she said, well, so am I. And she goes to Canyon Ridge Church, and 
She said, I could just tell. I want to think it was some positive vibe she got. Okay? Well, this has been about three weeks ago. My wife and I were standing in line. And by the way, Cherie will be back next Sunday, and she will do the Advent. Um, She's doing the Christmas program in the church we regularly attend uh, this morning. And I've told her that different ones of you have asked about her, and she said, well, that's so nice. I'm so glad to hear that. But anyway, we're standing in this long return line at Hobby Lobby. And there was some lady ahead of us, And, I mean, it took about a half hour, she's a designer, she said, and she was bringing in all her returns. And we're standing in line, and the line is stretching halfway back to the back of the Hobby Lobby uh, off of Cheyenne and, and Rainbow. And there's this young man who's just moved to Las Vegas that is standing behind this in line, and, and um, I started talking to him, and he said, I like you. So well, okay. He said, you just look happy. He said, are you that way all the time? Well, I don't think so. Well, here's the point of what I'm trying to say. I'm telling you, when you have a faith in your heart and your life, whatever the circumstances, whether you're in a serious moment of a prayer walk or whether you are agitated by standing in a line that's too long at Hobby Lobby, there is, a, there is something that should be emanating from us as Christians because our happiness is not contingent primarily on the situation or the location or the circumstances. But I really believe it is the Spirit of the Lord that radiates out of our lives. Now, you might be sitting there and thinking, Well, I've never seen you look particularly happy, Pastor Stan. You look kind of unhappy. Well, I'm sorry about that, but there was two people. And I hope they say about that about you sometime. And you know, I think faith and joy are linked together. I barely remember this story. And I'm not sure whether I am remembering it in the way my father told it to me or whether... Because I was only about two or three years old. Now, I met somebody who said he remembered something that happened when he was one. But he's got a lot better memory than me. But I wanted, now this part I don't exactly remember. But my father told this story for years. There was a little red wagon that I saw in a store window. This might have been in Vacaville, California. And somehow I just glommed onto that little red wagon and I wanted it for Christmas. And I kept telling my parents I wanted that wagon and I was going to get it for Christmas. I knew that Santa Claus was going to bring it to me. Well, my parents were pretty poor when they were starting out in the ministry. In fact, in my later li- our later life, my father would never eat rabbit. Why? Because they were so poor when they started out in the ministry in Daly City, they had a little yard and they bought some rabbits because they reproduced so fast that they could grow and eat them. And when he could afford something besides rabbit, he never wanted rabbit again. And that was kind of our economic situation. But he told me, 
He said, I just couldn't let you down, Stan. He said, I just knew that your heart was set on that little red wagon. And you knew you were going to get it. And you know what was under the Christmas tree on, sun, on Christmas morning? The little red wagon. And I want to tell you, this little boy's heart was filled with joy and happiness because my wish had come true. And Christ brings joy into our life because of the faith that we have and the presence of God, and it really doesn't depend upon the circumstances. I'll say more about that in the message in just a moment. But this is the week of joy. And in, and in your devotions this week, just look for passages of Scripture. You might want to uh, go to Bible Gateway on your computer if you still use a concordance and just look up joy passages of Scripture and read them because I'm telling you, we live in a joyless world today. Boy, there's a lot of grumpy and uh, cranky people. You know, some people don't think the planet's even going to last nine more years because it's going to implode or something. Well, I, it might if the rapture happens, you know. I hope it, I hope it doesn't implode. Well, it is going to be destroyed eventually before it's renewed. Anyway, Lord, we look to you today and we thank you for this season of joy. And we pray, Lord, as we come down now over the home stretch of this Christmas season, that this week in our thoughts and in our meditations, we would be thinking about the joy that you can bring into this world, into our lives. And we thank you and praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know Gary is a kid at heart. And I'm pretty sure Vanette had you in mind. But you're going to have to earn this one. Would you? Yeah, you're going to have to earn it. Okay? Yeah, you're going to take it. You're the last one to take yours, but you need to go through the congregation and see who wants a candy cane today. Okay? Uh, there's a handout here. It's on the, it was on the podium, so I don't know if I was supposed to mention it or not. But uh, Pastor Childers had put a, a prayer for emotional holiness in the back there. You may want to pick that up and, and, and read it. So I've got to get my clicker, and then we will get rolling here. Anybody want to come and blow the candles out? You started it. You've got to finish it. <laughs> Okay. So this is the third week of Advent, and we're looking at this subject of joy, the topic of joy today. Uh, This isn't a Christmas passage of Scripture. It comes from the Apostle Paul. But I just think that it fits for today. In Philippians 4.4, The Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. 
Now, many of you probably know this. I've got some more if you run out up here, Gary. So, um, This is Paul's, one of Paul's prison epistles. It was written while he was in, in prison. And um, it's called the Epistle of Joy. His circumstances didn't make him upset or depressed or discouraged. And so just keep this in mind as we move through uh, this, this message this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. I want us to look at Christmas people today. I'm just fascinated by the people that were a part of the Christmas story. And we're going to look, first of all, this morning, at some of those who missed that first Christmas and try to do a little spiritual psychoanalysis here on what was going on in their head and heart and life that caused them to miss that first Christmas. So joyless first Christmases. So this is the bad news first. And uh, Mark Twain, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, He has lots of quotes that he made. And one of them he made that has always stuck in my mind is history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it does rhyme. And as we look at these people who missed and made Christmas, I want you to be asking yourself, does this person, event, that happened once upon a time, does it rhyme with something that's happening in my life? So the first one is Caesar Augustus. Augustus Caesar made a law. It required that a list be made of everyone in the whole Roman world. Now Caesar, we can't blame him for missing the first Christmas, really, can we? He was uh, the Mediterranean Sea North of where Jerusalem was. And Israel was just a little rebellious province out there. And um, he wasn't too concerned about it. He had bigger fish to fry than that. But there's some things that were going on in Rome at the time that to me they rhyme with some things that are happening in our own world today. So let me get to it. Um, it was said that in the first 500 years of the Roman Republic, which is to be distinguished from the Roman Empire, that there was not one recorded divorce in all of Rome, in that whole country and the city. It was they had a strong middle class, Uh, They didn't worship the Christian gods, they worshiped pagan gods, but they were uh, knit together by nuclear families and a good work ethic and just a a spirit of the republic. uh, uh, They didn't have an emperor. It was really modeled after the Greek style of democracy, what we have in our own country, a republic where you had representatives. And it was, a, it was really, in many ways, the healthiest period of the Roman Empire. By the time Caesar Augustus came, 
That ship had sailed. Now we're into the second Caesar, Julius Caesar being the first, and Augustus Caesar, and decadence, um, kind of an oligarchy of government where you had the elite powerful uh, were in place. The middle class was in decline. Uh, there was a declining birth rate in Rome. And they were opening the doors for immigrants to flood into the country. Um, there were people who kept track of the year it was by the number of marriage they were on now. There had been a lot of slippage. And while the empire was growing more powerfully militarily and materially, at least for the elite that were at the top, there were some real problems. And Caesar Augustus was a reform emperor, or so he tried to be. He tried to incentivize the Roman people to have more babies so there'd be enough Romans to populate Rome. Uh, he was trying uh, to do all sorts of things to try to stabilize. But it never really worked. Did you know that one of the reasons, and I don't think it was Augustus Caesar that built the Colosseum, but one of the reasons the Colosseum was built in Rome was to keep the disgruntled citizens of Rome, that it had to migrate there from the countryside because their farms had been taken over by the rich, um, uh, what we would call um, mega farms that were opening up. And they created the, Rome, the games in the Roman Colosseum to try to appease a disgruntled republic. Like Marie Antoinette said in the French Revolution, give them cake. Give them games, give them sport, keep them happy so they won't rebel. And the reason I mention Caesar as one who missed Christmas is political renewal and efforts alone were not going to turn around the Roman Empire. It would still survive for generations after this. But there were deep-seated problems. I say that because... We live in a time right now where we're turning in every direction. I say we, we're starting to do this in our country. It's happened in, in the Western Europe. We're turning to every other kind of man-made solution we can think of to try to straighten out what is breaking within our world today. The war on Christmas has begun in our country. You've probably seen some of the episodes of it in the news this week trying to ban Christmas trees and all this sort of thing. Listen, what we need is not less Christ in Christmas, but we need more Christ in Christmas to bring joy and stability and uh, a common moral code into our land. Augustus Caesar missed Christmas because the solution to the problems of the empire then and does it rhyme with now? Same sort of thing that's happening today. Now let me tell you a real rascal here. King Herod, and he's without excuse. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the peoples, 
chief priests, the priests, the Sadducees and Pharisees, and teachers of the law, the rabbis. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. He really didn't want to go and worship the Messiah, though. You know, King Herod was not even really a king. He designated himself king. He was the governor that was appointed by Caesar Augustus over Judea or Israel in those days. But this guy was a legendary egomaniac and piece of work. He was, um, well, I've referred to this before, but when my kids were little, I read them the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's the wicked witch of the north. And she's wanting to destroy these children that have crept into the land of Narnia through the wardrobe. If you remember the story, you don't, that's not important if you don't know what I'm talking about there. But the thing that the wicked witch of the north would use to seduce and then to captivate the loyalty of humans of Middle Earth was what she concocted. It was Turkish delight. Has anybody read an article, remember Turkish delight? This was an addictive candy that you just couldn't get enough of and it would put you under her spell. Maybe kind of like fentanyl today, I don't know. And King Herod had eaten Turkish delight. He was addicted to power, control, riches, The rich and the powerful can never get enough of it, can they? And they're always afraid they're going to lose it, aren't they? I've given it a name for years now. I call it rich man's disease. I've known some people that have been afflicted by rich man's disease. And it brings out all the worst within them. Herod had 15 palaces in a land that's about the size of the state of New Jersey. He put swimming pools and gardens in each of them. I visited two of them. The first one, you might have heard of, Masada. That was constructed by King Herod. The Winter Palace, my wife and I visited there about three years ago. These are stretched for acres and acres. But he had 15 of these suckers. He just couldn't get enough of it. For all of this, he was paranoid that somebody, maybe even in his own family, was going to try to take his kingdom from him. He had one of his wives executed because he suspected her of treason, and two of his own sons executed. He wanted to be memorialized and leave a legacy. He did great renovations on the temple in Jerusalem. He wasn't even a Jew himself. He was married to a Jewess. But renovations of the temple wanted to be loved 
And yet he was ruthless. He was stricken by a disease. We don't know what it was. It's not ever named by Josephus. I, this is just in my own mind. It, must have been, it might have been something like colon cancer or something. Because it struck him in the bowels and it was terrible, terribly painful. And when he knew he was going to die, he ordered several of the leading citizens in Jerusalem to be arrested and executed at the moment of his death so there would be wailing in the streets of Jerusalem when he died. His surviving family, thankfully, didn't carry out that wish. The irony of all of this is he was a miserable, joyless man. But it could have all been so different, even at this late stage of the game, if when these wise men or magi came, if he had gone to bow down before the king of kings, the story and the ending of the life of Herod would have been much different, wouldn't it? Herod would not even be a blip in the history books were it not for the Christ of Christmas that he sought sought to exterminate. And rather than being remembered in legacy, he's remembered in infamy. Nobody names their sons Herod. You might name a dog Herod, but not your sons. He missed Christmas altogether. I don't know if that rhymes with anything in your life or anything in the lives of people you know. I hope it doesn't rhyme with anything in your life. Someone else who missed Christmas is the innkeeper. The time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now I want to give the innkeeper a pass initially here. He's just a businessman. He's trying to make a living. There is a census that has been announced and people are coming in from thither and yon to, uh, to their hometown to be there to register for the census and there's not enough rooms for everybody. He's overwhelmed. He's not even actually mentioned in this text. But there has to have been an innkeeper of some sort. Somebody that said you can't stay here. But let's wait for just a moment here. He is presumably a Jew. And if he's a Jew, he's a practitioner, at least nominally, of the Jewish faith and the Jewish religion. And as a... um, Moral obligation of the law. You are obligated to look after the destitute, the outsider, the homeless. And here you have showing up on your doorstep a woman that might even be having contractions right now. She's in the last stages of pregnancy. And even the Jewish religious leaders 
would shame him for turning this pregnant young woman away. Now maybe, maybe, but it doesn't say this in the text. I say maybe because my wife questioned me on this yesterday when she asked me about what I was speaking on today. She said, well, maybe the innkeeper's the one who let him stay in the manger. Maybe. But it doesn't say that. All it says is there's no room for him in the inn, and they were on their own and went into a manger. You never know when opportunity that might be the moment of a lifetime might come your way. But I can tell you, it's probably not going to come when you expect it or think you are ready for it. We just have to be aware all the time. Scripture tells us to beware because we never know when we might be entertaining angels unaware. And I'm telling you, Mary, with God incarnate in her womb, was an angel unaware. Right there, wasn't she? Think about times in your life. Hopefully, when even though it was inconvenient, you responded. And you stepped up and you helped out or you did something. And you were glad you did. But it wasn't when you thought it would happen or thought you were ready for it to happen. How different the story of the innkeeper would have been if he had said, we just don't have a place. But here, you come. I'm going to help you find a place to stay. He would have found his way in Scripture in a way in which he would have lived for 2,000 years and more for being there and responding at that time. The religious leaders, where were they? Their silence is deafening. They were without excuse. Remember, Herod had summoned the leaders to come and tell them where this king of the Jews was supposed to be born. His motives were impure. He had sinister intentions here. But I can see the religious leaders' eyes darting and catching eye, making eye contact with one another. They knew Scripture. They knew Bethlehem was where the Messiah was to be born. But they wanted no part of checking this out themselves. Why? You know, they had become the leading citizens of Jerusalem. They were part of the power elite of the city. They had high social standing, not necessarily because they were so revered by everyone, but that's just the way it shook out in Jerusalem in those days. They were affluent, they were influential, they had a pedigree at education, they were the head of the judicial system, they were set... The last thing they wanted was for Messiah to come because it would change all of that for them. Sometimes there are people that become so set in their ways, in the right things, they knew Scripture, they knew the law. But this had become a comfort zone and a security blanket in their own life. And they did not want a Messiah to come and spoil the good thing that they had. 
Now, I like religion. I know that a lot of people say, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. And I understand what they're saying there, okay? But you've probably picked up a little flavor of this just in the temporary time I've been here. Uh, I like the Advent candles. I like that cross on the wall over there. I like things decorated for Christmas. I like a little pomp and ceremony. I'm telling you, when I take trips, and I'm, my wife wants to go on another one, so I've got to start saving now, uh, there's nothing I like more than going through the cathedrals. I'm telling you, God doesn't even have to be there for me to feel his presence. The stained glass windows, you walk in, and it just speaks of it. I love all of that. But if that ever becomes an end in itself, it's just empty ritualism. And we can get seduced into that sort of a thing. It is intended to be a gateway and a porthole that transports us beyond that into the realm of the living God. Those men that designed those cathedrals, they wanted you to feel like you were entering into heaven, and I'm telling you, it feels like it. When I walked into Notre Dame Cathedral one Sunday morning, this was back in the uh, 80s or 90s, I don't remember it was, I mean, I just sat there mesmerized. I was thinking of all of the history and all of the consecrations. I I know it's Catholic, and I know I'm not a Catholic and all that, but for all that, I jumped up and I went up and took communion. I didn't find out until later I wasn't even supposed to. (laughs) And I did it the wrong way because I had been to Catholic masses before where you stick out your tongue and they lay the wafer on your tongue. Now, I didn't know how to do it here. In, here I'm in Notre Dame Cathedral. And I walk up there and I stick out my tongue and the priest says, in your hand. So I had to take it that way. <laughs> he could tell I was an American somehow. I don't know how that worked. But these religious leaders are without excuse. We cannot let our religiosity and our religion become anything more than an opening and a passageway into the spiritual presence of the living God and transport it there. And heaven forbid that we ever do it for material or earthly purposes. There was a cartoon I saw one time. This is back in the years of the Jesus movement when Maranatha music and you had all these groups that are doing this and and I know even today, it's, um, you have to be careful about what you do because of copyright laws and all of that. There was a cartoon I, I saw one time. And let me preface this cartoon I'm going to tell you about. Uh, I've always cringed a little bit when somebody stands up and says, I want to sing a song that the Lord gave me. Because after I've heard him sing it, I know why God gave it away. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't worth that much anyway. I guess that one didn't land. Okay. But uh, there was this cartoon, and there's this Christian rock and roll looking guy in a cartoon figure leaning on his piano saying, I want to share a song with you, and the caption below is saying this, that the Lord gave me. But if you dare use this without my permission, I will sue your socks off. You know, that's when religion is misused and abused. We use it for profiteering purposes. And then there are the ground zero people. Let me keep moving here. 
the citizens of Jerusalem, where are they? This is the holy city. This is the city that houses the temple of God. All of the citizens in the city are presumably practicing Jews. But they miss Christmas completely. This might be a little bit of a stretch here. You just take it for what it's worth. I'm calling this the Tower of Babel Syndrome. There is something about the city, and I understand that there is the New Jerusalem that is coming down out of heaven from God. It's a city. It's a big one. But this side of the return of the Lord, the city seems to be the incubator for all of the things that go wrong in a culture and a society. They are very dismissive of people that live in the country. You ever notice that? The, the coastal elites in our own country... They are trying to set the agenda for all the rest of the country. They call it the flyover zone, the Midwest. They're trying to tell people in Alaska what to do. Now, I'm from the city, Las Vegas. You think they're going to listen too much to what you have to say in Overton or Logandale? And there are great individuals within the city, but there's something of a kind of a collective spirit. And I think it is this. They are proud. They become self-sufficient. They have all the amenities and the accruciments of life that we need. We have the medical centers. We have the universities. Uh, we have better jobs. We have a higher standard of living. We have more uh, cultural attractions. We have all of those things. And remember in the Tower of Babel, they united and they were trying to build their own way to heaven. Become their own godlike place. Their own laws, their own rules. Does it remind you of anything? It's happening in cities in our country today and in our world. They missed it. There's one other group before we turn the corner here. Hometown of Jesus, Nazareth. I visited Nazareth. In fact, I visited a church in Nazareth. Who knows if these things are historically accurate or not. But in a certain section of that church, you walk over a grate that is there, a metal grate that you can actually step on, and you can look down below, and they say that you're looking into the house where Jesus of Nazareth grew up. Mud walls. Uh, there's not a roof on it, but you, you look down, and it, it's just a little house. They say, this is where Jesus grew up. If it's not, it was probably something like this. Uh, Nazareth, if, if memory serves, was a town that numbered in the high hundreds not even in the thousands. It was just a very small village. The family of Joseph and Mary would have been known there. Everybody knew who Joseph was. Mary was. They knew who Jesus was. All kinds of stories about Jesus that are, 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 are not true, but there were these legends that grew up about Jesus. 
It said when Jesus went down to the um, river and he was with his friends and they were making clay pigeons and he made his fly away. Well, I don't think those stories are true, but Jesus was but So why did Nazareth not accept Jesus? Jesus couldn't do many miracles there. And it was actually in Nazareth, and the passage of Scripture is there in Luke chapter 4, where he spoke in the synagogue in Nazareth, or in Galilee. And these were his countrymen and his neighbors. And they drove him out, and I've stood on the mountain. Where they took him to a mountain, and they were trying to throw him over and kill him. And somehow, miraculously, he just walked through the crowd and escaped them. You can read about that account in in that passage that's there. Sometimes familiarity breeds contempt or suspicion or rejection. This guy says he's the son of God. I saw him playing with the kids down the street when he was just a kid. Sometimes we can miss what God is doing through the everyday and familiar things that are a part of our life. But he's the God of the ordinary. And Nazareth, which was his hometown, missed the Christ of Christmas. Okay, Act 2. Let's look at some joyful first Christmases now. Some of the people that did not miss Christmas. There's Mary and Joseph to start with. We've got to start with the parents in the Holy Family. Biological mother of Jesus, Mary, and the legal father of Jesus, Joseph. Let's look at Mary first. Why was he chosen? Now here's something, and I did look this up early this morning just to make sure I was on target here. In the first century, the lifespan of the citizens of the Roman Empire, now Israel would have been a part of that, but that's much bigger than that, was between 22 and 30 years of age. In Israel, in ancient Israel, you could expect to live about 40 years. If you were 40 years old, you're old and you're probably going to die soon. Now, there were some that lived much longer. We're going to see one uh, in just a moment but at the close of the message this morning. But um, now that 22 to 30, that is kind of tilted downwards because there were lots that were died. Infant mortality rate was higher and all of that. But, but the, the, that second one, about 40, was um, about the time you could expect to live in uh, Israel in the first century. Now, I say that because I'm not trying to sound edgy here at all, but Mary, many people think, could have been as young as 12. I think that's at the low end. But probably not more than 13 or 14. At the outside, 15 years old. She's a young teenager. And Joseph... You know, people say that Joseph must have been much older than her, and he could have been, but nothing says that in Scripture. Joseph easily could have been a teenager himself. 
This is a young couple. And Mary, there's something standing out in the life of this young woman that marks her as the chosen vessel to be the mother of Jesus. There was something extraordinary about her. Two qualities, we read of these in Luke chapter 1. Her faith, angel Lord came to her and announced what was going to happen, and by faith, she said, if that's what you want to do, so be it, Lord. She had to know the controversy, the rejection. She had to know all of this. But she had the faith in the Lord and the voice of the Lord to say, okay, God. And her purity. I've mentioned this before. It's always struck me as significant. You know, boy, I'll tell you. Some of the spiritual reclamation projects that God does are extraordinary. Praise God. But he chose, by our standards today, a young teenage girl who was innocent, who was pure in heart, to be the one that would be the vessel that would carry the Son of God in her womb until birth. I think that says something about today. One of the things that is just so upsetting to me, I I, I had this thought just this week. I'm just so upset about what seems to be happening in our culture today. It doesn't rob me of my joy of the Lord. It is keeping me from watching the news as much as I used to. But this gender-bending nonsense, which is just plain stupid, I'm sorry. Okay? And the mutilation of their bodies, whether they be boys or girls, when they're young teenagers. The sexualizing of children in grade school, I don't think that happens as much in Clark County as it does in some other areas. And I, w- one of the reasons for that is because the strong presence of the Mormons in educational system, and praise God for that, we will take allies wherever we can get them on some of those issues. But there's something about this theft of innocence That is unforgivable. Whenever I think of this, I think of what Jesus said, that it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and you cast into the sea and to do damage to these children. And so purity and faith, these things need to be instilled and cultivated and celebrated because those are the things that God can use to do great things in a person's life. And then there is Joseph. Courage and character stand out in my mind when I think of Joseph. He was a young man. Boy, there'd be tremendous peer pressure on him to... Now, they they didn't actually, in the first century, they didn't stone them like it to death, like like uh, it had been prescribed in the law of Moses. 
But they were ostracized. They were penalized. They were stigmatized for life, for uh, an out-of-wedlock pregnancy. And Joseph, because of his character, chose to put Mary away quietly. He wasn't going to humiliate her. He wasn't to stigmatize her life. He didn't know what to believe. That is until the angel came and spoke to him. But he was a man of courage and character. And even though he knew that there would be a price for him to pay in the eyes of his peers, in the small town where he was growing up, he had that presence of character and that steel spine and the courage of his convictions to stand up for the right thing. And that's what God is looking for in people today. And it's getting harder and harder all the time to take a stand for the right thing. By the way, Vinette, we've got our nativity scene up in our yard now, too. Okay? And we've got great neighbors, and I'm just so thankful for them. And there was only one other nativity scene that I saw. I've seen a couple of stars of Bethlehem and a couple of other things, but we got it up. And there it is. And I'm not trying to put myself on a par with Joseph, but I'm just telling you, I just am not going to let an age of disbelief define the narrative in my life. I'm going to stand up for what I think to be true. I've got great relationships with my neighbors. They're not going to throw rocks at me because I've got that. And I'm not trying to be holier than thou. But this is, after, this is about the birth of Christ after all. And so anyway, Mary and Joseph. Let's keep going. The shepherds. There were some shepherds in that part of the country. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Don't be afraid. I'm abridging this a little bit. I am here with good news for you, which will be of great joy to all the people. Just a few miles outside the city of Jerusalem. The angels revealed themselves to the shepherds. Probably some young boys and some old men. They were really on the lowest rung of society. It's not that it was a dishonorable trade, but this wasn't something that uh, was prestigious in any way. But God always comes to those that are humble and lowly in heart and not smug and swole with pride and self-sufficiency. Those are barriers the Spirit has a hard time breaking through. And the shepherds received that. Uh, I mentioned, she's not here right now, but to Mary, there's, um, there's a prisoner. And I want to send them uh, some money for Christmas. And... Um, so I asked her, because to get it through the prison and all of that, it needs to come from, like a church it can come from. So anyway, his name is Ryan Smith. I won't tell you the whole story, but um, he had a, came from a horrible background. Anyway, long story short, just understand his background is not good. And just before I met him, this was in Eugene, uh, he had been involved 
in a, in a robbery of some sort. And um, he asked me if I would come alongside him, and I went to court with him and did all these kinds of things. I didn't testify, but I was there for him. And he's in the, just finished his third year of a six-year sentence right now. And Ryan got so mad at God but he would call me every week, and I'm waiting for him to call me again. He hasn't called me for a couple weeks now. And, uh, but he'd call me, and he would be, he said, Pastor Stan, I'm just so mad at God. I was turning my life around, and why did this happen? Because this had happened, this incident had happened just before he had made a commitment of his life to the Lord at the, uh, at the church there. Anyway, all those details are, are beside the point. But when I talk to him now, God is doing such amazing things in Ryan's life. And he started a ministry there in the prison. And I think some of his ideas are kind of grandiose, but I don't know. Uh, he, God and the Spirit is speaking to him, and he speaks of how Scripture is speaking to him, what the Spirit is saying. And I'm telling you, God is doing some amazing thing in Ryan Smith's life. While he's behind bars. And during this time, there's even been healing in his relationship with his mother, from whom he has been estranged. He's led other prisoners to Christ. And time will tell what will happen, but I am telling you, there has been an epiphany. And what I mean by epiphany, there has been an appearance of the presence of the Lord in his life that is seeing him through this circumstance in his life. Now that's even worse than what the shepherd's situation was. But God comes to those that are beaten down, broken-hearted, rejected. And that's where he comes and brings hope into people's lives. And that's something that we need to realize that when we are broken down, then we're in a place where God can break through into our lives. I remember saying to Ryan, go ahead, Ryan, this is over the phone. You can say whatever you want to God. He's got broad shoulders. He can take it. And boy, he did do a lot of venting, apparently. But now, he's just made a commitment of his life to the Lord. And he says he's called to the ministry. I don't know. I keep thinking the Lord's going to get him out of prison a little early. I don't know, though. But anyway, (laughs) the thing from the shepherds, they didn't miss Christmas in their brokenness, in their humility, God came to them, and that's how he comes to us too. The Magi, almost done. Who were these guys? There's nowhere in Scripture where it says they were kings. There's nowhere in Scripture it says they came on camels. There's nowhere in Scripture it says there were three of them even though tradition has named them Casper, Belshazzar, and Melchior. I visited where they are supposed to be buried. If uh, Gene was here, he could correct me on the pronunciation of the cathedral in Köln, Germany. There they are. I don't think it's really them. They didn't bring those um, relics in until the 12th century. So that's over a thousand years after they're supposed to have lived. But anyway, who were they? And this is, this is interesting. They are called Magi. Who were the Magi from the East? 
Now, this is going to sound a little edgy for a moment, but hear me out. They were probably wise men from Persia that were practitioners of the religion of Zoroastrianism. Many similarities between Zoroastrianism and Christianity and Judaism for that fact. They believe in one God. They believe in a battle between good and evil. They believed in angels and demons. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. And probably, this is, this is just speculation, there would have been some influence among the Jewish exiles through the Magi in Persia during the years of the Babylonian captivity, when they were captive. And so there was a great curiosity because of the similarities. Here's what I'm driving at. Even if you are an outsider, if you have a heart that is seeking for truth, God will find a way to bring you to your Bethlehem. Bring you into contact with the presence of the living God. Now I know it says in a different sense of the term, after they visited Christ, they returned another way geographically. They didn't want to go back to Herod. But I'm telling you that whatever far land you're coming from, if you have a heart that is seeking for the living God, he will find a way to reveal himself to you. And after you account, after you encounter the living God, you too will return a different way because of the revelation that Christ brings of himself into your life. Lastly, the joyful littles of the first Christmas. These are the little people that are there. We read about them in Luke chapter 1 and 2. The first is a couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are the supporting class. Their motto would be, we're number two. They were actually relatives of Mary and Jesus. They were the parents of John the Baptist. It's very important, and this is true for almost all of us, maybe all of us in this room today. We are never going to be the top dog. But God has a role for us to play in a part of the economy of the bigger picture of what God is doing. It's good to be ambitious. It's good to have goals. But John the Baptist prepared the way for the coming of the Savior. And Zechariah and Elizabeth accepted their supportive role. Now, I have a son. I talked to him just recently. He's doing very well as uh, a lawyer in um, the least populous state in the Union, Wyoming. And... Um, He's young, he's only 37 years old, and he's 
and I, I'm, I'm saying this as a proud parent, but that, that's not the point of what I'm trying to get at here. Uh, he's climbing up the ladder there in, in the um, uh, district office in that uh, district where he is now. Uh, he just had an invitation to become, a, a, there was the candidate that was running for attorney general of the state of Wyoming, and he won it, and he asked my son if he would come on as his legal counsel, and he declined it. Uh, he's gotten to know some of the influential people in state politics uh, in, in, in Wyoming. And so here I am, the proud father, and, and I, you know, the proud father of me is saying, you know, Greg, you're going to be governor of that state one day with the trajectory you have. You will be the attorney general. And, and now just back away, with the high marks he's getting, that could well happen. But he said something to me. He said, Dad, I'm not called to be the leader. I'm called to be the person behind the leader that is supporting them in doing that. I still want him to be governor. But you know, there's some maturity in someone that would say that, take measure and say, Dad, I don't have to be number one. It's enough for me to be behind the scenes and being number two. And if we have that kind of a humble heart, we're willing to do whatever God asks us to do and, and go wherever he leads us to go, you're going to find the plan and purpose in the presence of Christ in your life, too. Next to last, Simeon, an old man. He had been praying for Israel's consolation. And in the days after Jesus' birth, when he was brought to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord, Simeon, who was there, picked out the Holy Family out of the crowd. And something in his heart said, that's the one. And he took baby Jesus and held him in his arms. Now he had seen it, and he was ready to go to be with the Lord. Simeon never saw the mature Christ. He never saw who he would grow up to be. But it wasn't all about him. He had been praying and waiting for the consolation of Israel. And if he could just catch a glimpse of that, his life and his mission was fulfilled. Sometimes, we may, have a, we may be a link in the chain of something God is doing. But we might not be the main event or see the main event of it, but it doesn't matter. As long as we were faithful to be believing that and waiting for that and seeking that so that others who come after us can experience the fullness of that. And then the last one is Anna. Her latter years she had dedicated to prayer. Scripture tells us in these passages right here 
that she had been married for seven years and then she was widowed. And she had been a widow for 84 years. And her last years, and she well could have been. We don't know at what point in her widowhood she went into the prayer in the temple as a woman of prayer, but she dedicated her life to prayer. Some say she might have been over 100 years old at this point in time. We don't know. But she had been praying for the redemption of Israel and dedicated her life to prayer. Now, I've been speaking here for several months now, and so forgive me if sometimes uh, I repeat myself. I'll just blame it on senior moments. Okay. And I can't remember if I told you about Louise Sakinas, but this is the last story, and then we're done. She was in the first church I pastored in Aptos, and she had a husband named Eddie who had not been serving the Lord. I had met Eddie before. And she had been praying for him, she said, for his salvation for 35 years. We went away, probably to Oregon. That's where I always go on my vacations. I don't know. But we came away. We came back. Came to church on a Sunday morning. And who is sitting next to Louise in church? Eddie. How did this happen? So I talked to him after the service. This is what he told me. He said, I was sitting out in my yard. They had a beautiful yard in their place, just out in the countryside out there. And he says, an angel came and spoke to me and said, I better get my life right with God. And so I did. I'm telling you, Louise Sakinas was the happiest person I've ever seen after this happened. 35 years of praying. But God answered the prayer. Anna's persistence in prayer for the redemption of Israel was met when she saw the Christ child. Don't ever give up on your prayers. We could all tell stories of how we've prayed and prayed and prayed and it hasn't happened. And then when you give up and quit praying, then all of a sudden, shazam, there it comes. With God, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. Don't give up because God's not finished yet. So the last question I have is, what is your joy meter reading today? Is there joy in your heart and life in this season of the year? Is there anything that is rhyming with your life that has happened in the lives of those before? Maybe those who made Christmas. I hope it is. Or those who missed Christmas. But in this third week, as we think about the week of joy, just know God wants there to be joy in your heart, in your life. He wants to be born into your experience, into your mind and your heart. Let him in.
Amen? Let's stand together. I just wonder if there is anybody here, and um, we, I don't need to know the circumstances. Nobody does, but uh, you'd like to inc- me to include you in a prayer. Something in the joy meter in your life is registering a little lower than what it should be right now. And um, there's nothing to be ashamed of. We're all human, but you're here, and you'd just like to be remembered as I close in prayer now. Anybody? Anybody at all? Okay. I see somebody being pointed to there. Okay. Lord, we come before you today and we thank you for the richness of this season of the year. And Lord, I pray that you would speak into every one of our lives. And if we have the joy of the Lord in our heart right now, we just thank you for that. But if there's some area of our life that is rhyming with something that happened, or uh, who some of these who failed to meet the Christmas, first Christmas, we pray, Lord, that we would look to you in faith, in courage, in expectation, and that you would accomplish that in our life that makes us joyful in spirit, in conversation, in our relationships, in our own heart. And may the joy radiate out from us for our friends and family and the workplace and all that we do. We pray that this would be a joyful week as we serve and follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.